Heavenly Father, <coughs> thank you for giving us voices that we can worship you. It is interesting as we sing this song, Jesus Christ, our living hope, as I am taking David and Lydia through the, the devotional in First Peter, and how we talked about a living hope that we have. That in the midst of such trials and persecution as those Gentile believers were going through, Peter reminded them that they have a living hope. That the proof of their faith, which is more precious than gold, that is what we treasure. And the outcome of that is our salvation. Lord, thank you for, once again, your generosity, the inheritance that awaits us. But thank you for the opportunities that we have to demonstrate to a lost and dying world that we have a living hope. It is not a hope that disappoints. And Lord, speak through me to bring glory to yourself. I want to put you on display this morning from this pulpit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we're looking at verses 5 through 8 this morning. Matthew chapter 6, 5 through 8. If you don't have your Bibles, I put the verse up here for us. Matthew 6, 5 through 8. Again, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to the people. And he is telling them that their thinking, their theology is inadequate. It's not going to get them into the kingdom of heaven. That the standards that they are seeing and, and thinking about aren't good enough for the kingdom of heaven. So he's correcting their theology. Now he's going to correct their behavior. Specifically, their religious activities. Talks about their giving, their praying, and their fasting. And here he says, introduces prayer, which is obviously the subject of our focus in the sermon series. He says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you that they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. I want to share with you a, a quote from R.A. Torrey in his book called The Power of Prayer. And I want to think that perhaps you can relate to it because it's something that I went through this, this week. I decided to, to change up a little bit of how I was praying. And um, as I was praying, I would not really speak a whole lot until I sensed I was in the presence of God. 
which for me, at least, that means that it's time or that it takes time because it seems like every time I go before the Lord, I have to refocus and my mind just will will wander off and uh, I can very easily just lose focus. And so I have to still myself, you know, be still and know that I am God. And I quiet myself. I slow down. And I began to sense his presence. And when I was in his presence, in experience, and what I'm talking to you about is more, it's subjective. It is a feeling. It is a sense. I know that he is always with me. I know that I'm always in his presence. I'm never alone. But no, I sensed that I was in his presence. And there was an overwhelming sense of, of, of my unworthiness. I mean, confessing my sins. And there was peace that came and all that. But I had sensed his presence. And as I was doing that, and it was taking time. This morning alone, it was 45 minutes of me waiting upon him. Now, during part of that time, I did need to talk a little bit to refocus my mind. But I, I entered into his presence before I spent about an hour, hour and a half in prayer this morning. But when I would leave the prayer time, I didn't want to. There's a difference. This is what Ari Tori wrote. We should never utter one syllable of prayer, either in public or in private, until we are definitely conscious that we've come to the presence of God and are actually praying to him. It's kind of like, okay, this is exactly what I'm going through. And the Lord led me to this, so I want to share this with you. So I can remember when that thought transformed my prayer life. I was brought up to pray. I was taught to pray so early in life that I have not the slightest recollection of who taught me to pray. Nevertheless, prayer was largely a mere matter of form. Boy, I can relate to that. There was little real thought of God and no real approach to God. Even after I was converted, yes, even after I had entered the ministry, prayer was largely a matter of form. But the day came when I realized what real prayer meant. Realized that prayer was having an audience with God. Actually coming into the presence of God and asking and getting things from him. Some bald man might have mentioned that once or twice from the pulpit here. Before that, prayer had been a mere duty. And sometimes a very irksome duty. But from that time on, prayer has been not merely a duty, but a privilege. One of the most highly esteemed privileges of life. Before that, the thought that I had was, how much time must I spend in prayer? The thought that now possesses me is, how much time may I spend in prayer without neglecting the other privileges and duties of life? Talk about a different perspective on prayer. I want to begin this morning with what our Lord had brought up in Matthew chapter 6. And what I call, ironically, Me Too Praying. Obviously, I'm not talking about sexual harassment. You could title this Self-Centered Praying. Because this is really what he's talking about. But we're in this Me Too movement now, and it's all about self. Okay, you see the new iPhone? The slow most selfies you can do? You see a commercial for that? Slow selfies, that's what they call it? Anybody? Yeah. 
I find that repulsive. I, I don't like myself. I don't like, not that I hate myself, but selfies and stuff like that, I just don't get that. But we live in a very self-absorbed culture, and I just, kinda, I just call us the Me Too culture, or Me Too praying. Jesus says in, in here, don't, don't pray like this. See that? Now let me explain this to you. The street corners were a normal place for prayer at the time that Jesus spoke this. Because devout Jews would stop wherever they were at the appointed hour for prayer. Even if they were walking down the street or visiting at the corner. Do you know what the appointed hours for prayer were for a Jew back then? Nine in the morning, noon, and three in the afternoon. So historically, we can see that prayer was a priority priority for a devout Jew. But what I want you to notice from the text is something that would only be revealed if you took the time to do proper exegesis. Now, I've been here long enough, you should know what that word means. You really studied the text and went to the original language and the historical context and so on. Because if you go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, what does it say? Well, back in verse 2, when Jesus talked about giving to the poor in, in streets, in the streets, he used the word, the Greek word room, R-H-U-M-E, which refers to a narrow street. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your heavenly Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and where? In the streets. There's the word. That they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But in verse 5 that we just read, he uses the word wide. For streets, not the word narrow for streets, but the word wide for streets. And it refers to a wide major street or thus a major street corner where a crowd was most likely to be. So are you getting the picture? The time of prayer comes, guess who would position themselves in the big audience, in the big street corners? Yep, the Pharisees. Again, the pointed hours were at 9 in the morning, noon, and 3 in the afternoon. Perfect time for people who wanted to be seen praying because they were busy times of the day. Pompous hypocrites would gather at busy street corners at these times to be seen praying. Of course, the implied fault here is that the hypocrites love to pray where they would have the largest audience. Obviously, our Lord's point is this. In your prayers, make sure you're communing with God and not performing for men. Make sure you're communing with God, not performing for men. In other words, prayer that calls attention to self It has no place. Now, we don't do that in Christianity. We don't have set times of prayers, and we don't go to the street corners where people are to pray. In fact, 
Prayer is very, very personal and private. Right? And we will go to a closet or a room and to pray, but we still offer up self-centered prayers. Well, how do we do that? And I'm seeing smiles break across your faces because you know the answer to that question. You bring to him the list of everything you want. And it is you talking all the time, hoping that you'll wear God down to give you what you want. I have prayed that way. I find praying that way exhausting. But after all, the scriptures say, ask it shall be given to you. Seeking you so fine, knocking the door will be open to you, right? But prayer that is all about me, you'll see it has no place. Now, I want to be clear about something as well. In this context, Scripture does not condemn public prayer. But you can pray a self-centered prayer in public or in private. What matters is what? The attitude of your heart. That's his point. Now, let me share with you a funny story, a brief funny story. I have been through something like this, and maybe you can relate to this as well. There was a group of delegates from a Christian conference stopped at a busy restaurant for lunch. And they were seated at several different tables around the room. And just before eating, one member announced in a loud voice, let's pray. Chairs shifted and heads turned. Then followed a long-winded blessing that did more to cool the food than warm hearts. Finally, amid snickers and grumbling, came the welcome amen. Now contrast that with another scene. A history teacher at a large uh, public university was having lunch with his family in the school cafeteria. As they began their meal, a little three-year-old cried out, Daddy, we forgot to pray. Well, honey, said the man, would you pray for us? Dear Jesus, she began, thank you for your, thank you for our good food and all these nice people. Amen. From nearby tables came amens from professors and students alike who were touched by the child's simple and sincere prayer. One prayer was more self-centered than the simple prayer offered in faith. By the way, there's a reason why I don't pray long when we're going to bless the food. One, because I'm hungry. But two, because it's not a time for that. You're just going to ask God to bless the food. I remember being in a family gathering and the same thing happened. Uh, family and friends were there and someone stood up and they prayed this long prayer and I was just about ready to strangle the guy. That's just, okay, it's not a time for that. The food's getting cold. I had little children and they were fidgeting and so on. When you pray, we want to put God on display. It's not about self. Self Self-centered praying, Jesus says, it receives no reward from God. Because Why? They're not seeking a reward from God. They're seeking a reward from men. The reward of recognition. Which they've already received in this case. 
So there's no need for God to reward those kinds of prayers. Don't pray like this, he says, but do pray like this. He says, go into your inner room or the closet. You may recall house walls at this time were made of what? Basically mud, right? They were very easily broken into by thieves. They could punch or dig a hole into a wall and steal valuables. And so to protect the family riches, what would people do? Well, they built an inner room in the center of the home, typically, where all the valuables were kept. And Jesus says, go to that room, the inner room of the house, close the door, pray in secret, i.e., where nobody's watching except God. It's an audience of one. It's God. And this is such a direct contrast with the hypocrites who sought the most prominent public place to pray. And what is the focus? What's the point of him saying this about prayer? The focus is on the intimacy, the communion with God in one's heart. This is always at the center of all prayer. Every commentary, every book I've read about prayer, it always comes back to this when it talks about these verses. The focus of your praying is to commune with God. Now, if you are giving him a half hour and it's taking you longer than that to even enter his presence, then have you communed with God? No. Whatever it takes to slow yourself down, to sense his presence, and I'm talking again about it's a subjective feeling. You will sense and experience the presence of God, and it is something that you feel. It's not dry, because you'll know what dry feels like, by the way. Because it's the opposite of what you felt when you're in his presence. Persevere through that to his presence. Then engage him. This is what he's saying here. This is the focus. It's, you need the, when you pray, it's not bringing a list to him. It is to commune with him. Secret prayer alone with God is one of the best barometers of one's devotion to Christ. Because in the secret place, there is no one but God present to be impressed by your words. That's why Charles Spurgeon wrote this. It says, our king reigns in secret. Our king reigns in secret. There he sets up his court. And there will he welcome our approaches to him. If you pray this way, Jesus says, then your heavenly father, who sees what is done in secret, will what? He will reward you. Now, Jesus uses this word. I think it's really fascinating. Reward a lot in relation to prayer. But why? I think the answer lies again doing your proper exegesis. Just listen to this. The Greek word for reward means to pay or give back implying a debt. Do you hear me on that? This particular word carries the idea of an obligation and responsibility for something that is not optional. To state it differently, God will fulfill his promise to meet his obligation. So if you want to be rewarded from God, then get lost in the secrecy of communion with him. 
And he who is in secret and who sees the secrets of our hearts, he binds himself together with you and will keep his promises to answer your prayers. I find that comforting. It motivates me to pray. Here's another helpful illustration to remember this principle. Years ago, a man who was visiting uh, the United States uh, from Europe, he wanted to make a telephone call. And so, do you even have phone booths anymore? Do you ever know what a phone booth is? I realize it's a little bit of an older... Okay. But he entered a phone booth, but found it to be different from those in his own country. It was beginning to get dark... So he had difficulty finding the number in the directory. He saw a light in the ceiling, but didn't know how to turn it on. As the man tried again and again to find the number, a passerby noticed his plight and said, Sir, listen to this, if you want to turn the light on, you have to shut the door. To the visitor's amazement, when he closed the door, what happened? The booth was filled with light. He soon located the number and completed the call. You want to get an answer to your prayer, go be alone with God, shut the door, let the light fall upon you. Don't. The Me Too praying. Don't pray like that. Make it about him. The second type of prayer he wants you to avoid is what I call mechanical praying. Now, the Me Too praying, I mean, it obviously is the focus is on self, and it overplays prayer. It, it makes this big show of prayer. Whereas mechanical praying, it really kind of underplays prayer. It's sort of indifferent about prayer because it just rattles off meaningless words. Meaningless repetition literally means, in the Greek, to stammer or to stutter and to indicate mumblings or mutterings. And so Jesus says, when you pray, don't mutter and mumble mindless, meaningless terms like the pagans who think that they'll be heard for their many words. There is no communion with God if you do all the talking. That's not a relationship either. Think about what you are saying to God. And we do a very poor job of thinking about what we say to God. As a result, he knows it about us, so he's given us two helpers. The Spirit is always interceding for us, making our prayers make sense to God. And the Son is always interceding for us. In heaven, he lives to intercede for us because we don't know how to pray. And by the way, you will you will really struggle to commune with God if you don't slow down your life. Because when you slow down to pray, but you're in a, a hurried or busy state, what happens to your mind? It is frenzied, preoccupied, and you will never commune with him. It, or you, you'll never. It will, it, you'll have to take time 
to slow yourself down. And that's a process that takes time before you really enter into his presence. How long did it take Elijah to get refocused on God after he got busied and frenzied after the whole thing on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal? He had him go into a cave, and how long was he in there? It was a full day, alone in silence, before he was at a point where he could hear the voice of God. So just a little, throw that in there, slow down, as I've always been hammering all of us, because it's something I continually struggle with. But getting back to the text, the pagans, they thought that, well, okay, their gods need to be hassled into responding because of repetition. Not so with our Heavenly Father. Turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 18. We're going to look at two verses, one in, in 1 Kings and one in Acts, that I'm going to highlight how pagans pray. And sadly, how some Christians pray. 1 Kings chapter 18, so go to the middle of your Bible and make a left, you'll come upon 1 Kings, verses 20 through 29. Speaking of Elijah, on Mount Carmel in the prophets of Baal, one of my favorite stories here, this is totally a power display. And this is the challenge. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are four and fifty men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And when you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord God, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from what? Morning until noon. And what are they crying out? Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And what did they do? They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as the midday passed, what were they doing? So they raved on. That's the meaningless, mindless repetition. That's how the pagans would try to appease their God. Now, turn to Acts chapter 19, verses 23 to 34. Let me give you a New Testament example of how pagans pray. Acts 19, 23 through 
34. So about that time, this is Paul in Ephesus, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, meaning the Christian faith. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from, the, from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this made, that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia in the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged. And they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So, so the city was filled with the confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But watch this. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about how long? Two hours, what are they saying? The same thing over and over again. Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Just sit alone in a closet for two hours and repeat that phrase. That, folks, is mindless, meaningless, exhausting repetition. That's how pagans pray. I have a father. I do not talk to him by repeating the same phrase over and over and over again. For those of you that have a father that's still alive, is that how you communicate with your father? Then why do you talk to God like that? Now, does this mean that we are not to bring the same requests before God repeatedly? I mean, after all, didn't Jesus teach that we are to persist in prayers? Remember Luke 18, 1 through 8? So then he told them a parable to the effect that they were always to pray and not lose heart. Remember the story of the widow that was seeking justice and she goes before the judge and he's an unjust judge. And finally she wears him down. He says, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And this is what the Lord says in Luke 18, verse 6. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Obviously, the answer is yes. Will he delay long over them? No. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So we are to come before him. Jesus, did you know this? He repeated the same words in his prayer. 
Matthew 26, verses 36 through 45. Listen to this. You don't have to go there. Just listen. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You're familiar with the story, I hope. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? So for an hour he is praying. He says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I think it, unless I drink it, your will be done. So what is he praying for the second time? The same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for the eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time. Look at verse 45, saying the same words again. Paul prayed three times that the Lord would remove the thorn in his flesh. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of this revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So what's the difference, folks? Here it is. When it is the honest cry of a burdened heart, it is legitimate to bring it before God repeatedly. When it is mindless repetition, so as to remind God of your need, even though he already knows what your need is, that's meaningless and that it's illegitimate praying. Now, a sad truth about all of this is that although Jesus said not to use meaningless repetition in prayer, this is actually what we do when we recite the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 9-13 has become to too many people who recite it in churches on Sundays meaningless. It's rote, mechanical, heartless, Reciting. Think about the absurdity, and you'll understand this more when we break down the Lord's Prayer. Athletes pray this prayer before or after a football game. And we're repeating the Lord's Prayer. Think about that for a moment. What does that have to do with a football game? A little bit, but they have no idea really what they are saying. Because it starts off with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God comes first in our praying. God is not first in their minds when they're reciting the Lord's Prayer before a competition. Right? So how absurd it is to sit there and to just pray this prayer. And they are closing their eyes, they're bowing their heads, and they're reciting a prayer, and it's nothing more than rote, mechanical praying. And Jesus says, don't pray that way. If you come from the Catholic faith, you have to retrain your way how to pray because there's a lot of routine ritualistic prayers that do nothing to 
encourage communion with God. That is why, that's the whole point. Again, every commentary I read, I looked at a number of them, make this point about Matthew 6, 5 through 8. It is, you are to commune with him. That's the purpose of his instruction in praying. Now, as we close, communion with God, I want you to get this, it takes time. Now, there are men in the history of humanity that have most fully illustrated Christ in their character and have most powerfully affected the world for Jesus Christ. They are men who have been, who have spent so much time with God to make it a notable feature of their lives. We know who John Wesley is. He spent two hours daily in prayer. He began at four in the morning. Of him, one who knew him well wrote, he thought prayer to be more his business than anything else. And I've seen him come out of his closet, literally he would go to a closet and pray, with a serenity of face next to shining. Martin Luther said, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. He had a motto, he that has prayed well has studied well. Are you beginning to see again why I have railed against the five-minute devotional? Jesus would say to us today, I believe, you have heard it said, you are to do this. That's not good enough. You need to be doing this. Yet we have his teachings. And yet we struggle to even spend time with him. You don't know who this man is, but Archbishop Layton, I had to look him up. It was said of him, he was so much alone with God, they seemed to be in a perpetual meditation. Prayer and praise were his business and his pleasure. And his pleasure, says his biographer. I want you to remember that. Ian Bounds wrote this in his book, Power Through Prayer. When the, what the church needs today is not more or better machinery, not new organizations or more in novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. Pastor Edward Payson was just such a man, a man mighty in prayer. He prayed without ceasing and felt safe nowhere but at the throne of grace. And by the way, it's not that he led a... A large congregation around 1806 when he was pastoring over in Portland, Maine. It was a time of a severe depression just after the revolution. It was a hard time for himself and for his people, his people in his congregation. But he felt safe nowhere but the throne of grace. He may be said to have studied theology on his knees. Much of his time he spent literally prostrated with his Bible open before him, pleading the promise, I will send the Comforter, and when he, the Spirit of Truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Payson's advice to his fellow ministers was, 
Prayer is the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing necessary to a minister. Pray then, my dear brothers, pray, pray, pray. It has been well said that the secret of Edward Payson's ministry was they prayed much in secret. The scars on his bedroom floor, not carpet, folks, wood floor, testified to this fact. Next to Payson's bed were deep grooves in the hardwood floor where his knees had pressed repeatedly in times of travail and prayer. He prayed so much he wore grooves into the hard wood floors by his bed. Now, I remember growing up in ministry and reading this book by Ian Bounds and hearing other people talk about it and say that, you know, don't feel bad that you can't pray like this. You can't spend that much time. In other words, it was a justification to the standards of our day. I can tell you from the New Testament that James, the brother of Jesus, do you know what his nickname was? Camel knees. His knees look like the knees of a camel. Have you ever seen the knees of a camel? Thin legs, and it goes wide at the knees. Do you know why they call him camel knees? Because he's on his knees praying so much. He was known to pray. If you want to commune with God, it takes time. Now, why in the world would a man get up early in the morning and spend just... There's no Bible reading, by the way. This is just praying. Two hours in prayer. And I didn't even share with you other people who would average four hours a day in prayer. Some even eight hours a day in prayer. How in the world can somebody spend that much time each day in prayer. And even as Martin Luther said, if I don't do this praying this long, then my day is lost and the devil gets the best of me. How in the world can they continue in that type of prayer for that long? There's only one possible reasonable answer to that. They desired it. And what why would they desire it? They were communing with God. When you are with Him, because He's your Creator, He knows what your deepest needs are. And the Scriptures talk about, I want to dwell in your presence and the joy of being in His presence, the peace of being with Him. There is something so satisfying just being in His presence. It is that, I believe, that drives people to pray. I noticed that this week when I was praying... The hour ended very, very quickly. And I didn't want to go on to what I had to do next. That is what Jesus is saying. The whole reason of these, these verses, 5 through 8, is it's you are to commune with him. You are to experience him. Remember, you are getting to know him. Knowledge through experience. And so I'm asking you to do that this week. Gulp for some of you. I'm not talking reading your Bible. You can pray through it if you want, but slow down 
inwardly and engage him. Dare not say a word until you sense you are in his presence. And then you know what else I found as I began to practice prayer again this way? I, I just simply wanted to worship him. And so it was very little asking, but a whole lot of just adoring him. And it was satisfying. And so I'm asking you to do that. This is how you are to pray. Amen? Debbie, can you, in the worship team, come up and we'll close with a song? John. I would say that, to give you off the top of a couple of biblical reasons, that number one is there could be some sin you're clinging to. Number one, the times of intimacy that I've experienced with him came after, by the way, times of confession. Uh, I found myself crying out for the mercy of God. He would be merciful and even meet with me because I'm one who is just not worthy to be before him. Number two is he's also stretching my muscles. I've experienced that and still do struggle with, I, Lord, I don't have this hunger. I've consistently met with you, but I don't have this hunger. It's just not there. And he's teaching me to persevere through that, to see how much I just want to be with him. Because the reward for me, it really isn't that this prayer would be answered or that the church would grow, you know, or that Don you know, Crusan would become this great man of prayer, whatever I'm praying, I'm joking here, but you get the idea here, okay? Or that his trains would be ready for me so I can watch his trains, right, Don? But I just thought I want to just be with him because he is the reward. He is what is most satisfying. The other reason is that I know those times in my life when I'm not having a hunger for him, I have not filled myself with the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When that is in me, the more I put that in me, the more he will bring that out of me in remembrance as I worship him. And so, those are just off the top of my head some of the reasons why we don't have a, a hunger for God. But my, my suggestion would be, don't give up. Persevere in prayer. And then, you have a loving Heavenly Father. He will reveal to you why you have no hunger. And it could be that, you know, there will be sin in your life that you just don't know about because you don't know your human heart. It is beyond understanding, Jeremiah said. 
But God sees everything. And he will reveal to you what, you know, what, uh, what it is. And you can confess it. And I know this, that he will meet with you if you seek him with fill your whole heart. Now, there are dark nights of, this, you know, of the soul, hard times you've got to persevere through. But what he is teaching you when you go through those difficult times, you don't, how do you create hunger, by the way? Don't eat. How do you create hunger for God? Remove fellowship with him. You know what it's like to have fellowship with him? I want that. He removes it. Was it creating you? Hunger, more hunger for him. So persevere through that, John. You will find him. Amen? Father, would you bless our worship as we exalt you this morning and as they drop the mic. Amen.